Hi, this is Kimmy Alexander, and you found Tale Chasing. If you like magical fiction set in a contemporary urban environment, then you've come to the right place. We'll talk about writing it, reading it, and some of my own stories thrown in for good measure. So let's start creating some magic. Welcome to part two of my interview with Chris Lester from Metamore City. Now, you mentioned participation. Um, Two-part question. First, how long did it take you to get your listeners to start replying back to you? Hmm. Um. The reason I ask is because I know that I've got like 45, I've got like 45 people who are subscribed to my feed, um, my, my uh, feed burner. But right now, no one leaves any messages, you know, and I'm encouraging it, you know, through the podcast, and I mention it in my blog post, you know, if you want to comment, you know, you can call in, um, and I don't know if I just haven't had anything they've wanted to talk about, or if, you know, I'm doing something wrong, or... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it, for me, it, it definitely starts as a slow trickle. Um, a lot of the people who uh, first connected with me and gave me feedback on what I was doing were other podcasters or people who knew people who I was who I was uh, involved with to one degree or another. Um, actually, one of the first comments I got was uh, from P.G. Holyfield, uh, <laughs> my arch nemesis now, apparently, uh, who uh, that told me um, before the first episode even came out, you know, between episode zero and episode one, he sent me a message on Twitter telling me how much he was looking forward to Metamore City. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know exactly where he heard about me initially, probably through Leanne's show, but, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, how it started. It's, you know, it's, it still is a, a not a huge deluge of, uh, feedback, right. but, I, I get enough to fill the show, definitely, to, right. you know, to fill the feedback section. Um, now, I wanted to ask you, we're jumping back to um, having, you know, other people read your characters. Do you ever find that it's a problem being on their time schedule, you know, to get your stuff out? Well, um, the uh, one thing that I, I did in that respect was to work well in advance of my uh when i planned to release the episodes um i started i approached um leanne about doing huntress i think in june mm-hmm. um and of course that episode didn't air until october so yeah there were some delays in the production of that episode it wasn't until sometime in august that she was able to finally you know sit down and and do the recording for me but because I had planned not to even launch the, the podcast at all until the end of September, you know, it wasn't an issue. By the time that episode one uh, came out, I had all of my audio from people for, I think, the first, at least the first five episodes. Mm-hmm. And I was had almost everything for six and seven. So it was, uh, you know, it wasn't a rush because I planned ahead and I didn't start the podcast until I had enough to go with. And mm-hmm. all during that time, you know, once I, I knew that this 
this podcast was going to go forward, I started looking for people to play the parts that I needed mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, made sure that I was, you know, giving them deadlines that gave them enough time to do what they needed to do, but still gave me plenty of room. Um, up till now, I have not had anybody who was, you know, really giving me problems with not turning in audio. I mean, I had some people who were late because of one thing or another, and, mm-hmm. you, know, perf- you know, life happens. But uh, nobody who was so late that they were actually threatening to hold up the uh, production of the podcast. And in order to do that, you just have to, to work ahead and plan ahead and uh, make sure that you're you're asking for the audio long before you need it. You know, I, I, it would be a long time before I'd actually have to worry about who is going to be in episode 26. Um, you know, that would that's probably not going to air until December. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I wanted to get the part cast and recorded as soon as possible so that I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Next question. When I had spoken to you the other day on the phone, um, I, I wanted to, to just mention this in the podcast because I'm sure that there are so many podcasts out there and somebody's talked about it. I just haven't – I'm very behind on all of my podcasts. I feel bad about that. But I haven't – I hadn't heard anybody answer the question that I asked you last night what, with where you talked about the difference between audio rights and published rights, and I was wondering if maybe you could touch on that again for this interview. Well, let me first preface this by saying I am not a lawyer. <laughs> right. Give legal advice on copyright law, and if you need legal advice on copyright law, please consult an attorney. Right. Okay. Legal disclaimer over. Um, <laughs> as I understand it, um, audio the, the rights to the audio production of a a work are separate are negotiated separately from the print rights to a work because uh-huh. a you know an, a phonographic recording is considered a different you know it, you know it's it's an it's an interpretation of the medium even if it's a le- literal word for word uh, reading of the script it still is an interpretation of the original copyrighted text and is thus considered a derivative work and is not lumped in part and parcel with the uh, the print rights. So, mm-hmm. you know, typically a uh, your big package deal with a publisher will include some clause about um, audio rights, but it doesn't have to. And a the audio rights are not a make-or-break uh, issue with, with publishers. You know, look at Scott. Right. He was able to retain the rights to put out a you know, the, uh, a free audio production of his novel that was going into print in spite of the fact that, you know, this was, they were, they were then hoping to sell this book. Right. Um, uh, you know, the traditional media is uh, starting to understand that things like podcasts are a potential advertising stream. Uh-huh. And a way to, to generate interest in a, in a, a book. Uh, I think Ancestor and Jack Wakes Up and Infected have all proved that to our satisfaction now. Uh-huh. Um, people will, yes, buy a book in print after they have heard the, the audio version. Um, and what uh, Crown is doing with Infected is interesting because they are actually putting out a four, uh, you know, a four pay audio book of Infected. But uh-huh. it's got 
an extra 20 pages of content that's not in the printed book and is not in the free podcast. Nice. So the only way to get that extra material is to buy the audiobook. And, of course, sci-fi nuts being the completists that we are, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people are going to drop the 25 bucks to get the audio version to find out what those extra 20 pages are. Right, right. Are you hoping that um, any of the stuff that you put up on Metamore City gets traditionally published? I would like it to. I would like to see my my stuff in print. Um, it's not a uh, you know, it, it's not going to make me stop telling stories if they uh-huh. don't. Uh-huh. If a publisher came to me and said, "Hey, we like." You know, the fact that you've got a built-in audience here, we want you to write a book for us, but we want you to do something, you know, completely different. What else have you got? Uh Uh, That would be fine with me, too. I'd be perfectly happy to, you know, have my my print, my first print novel be in some other setting. Um, Because I do think that Metamore is very well suited to the audio environment. Uh-huh. I'd like I you know, I would like to see it in print, but I think that the highest uh, expression of this kind of storytelling is in this sort of immersive audio experience, where you've got the music and the sound effects and the different character voices. It's uh-huh. you know it's something more than you can get with just the words on the page. Great. Um. The other thing I wanted to oh I was going to ask you um I know that on your site you sell you're selling t-shirts for Metamore City was was that because it was somebody asked you or it seemed like a, a cool thing to do to you know as advertising what prompted you Uh it was mostly an advertising thing I saw what uh JC Hutchins was doing with his uh beta clone army uh-huh. and uh what uh Murr is doing with her you know, the T-shirts for her podcasts uh-huh. and, uh, you know, basically realized that this is a good way to turn people into walking billboards. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not making any money off of the shirts. I'm selling them for $12 plus shipping and handling. Right. Um, you know, which but after you take in PayPal's cut, I'm going to be lucky to break even on them. Right. But um, that's okay because then the IRS won't be complaining to me for not collecting sales tax. On <laughs> the people who make the shirts are charging me. <laughs> right, right. I'm making no profit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, mostly it was a way to help build the whole, you know, the sense of fan community and the sense of brand identity. Um, you know, it's it's a way to for people to demonstrate that, hey, I think that this, you know, this world, this show is cool, and I want to tell other people about it, and so I'm going to, you know, put the logo on my chest and, you know, walk around with Kaya Citadel on front, in front of <laughs> me, and whenever people ask, hey, what's that weird church-like looky thing on your, your chest, I'll be able to tell them all about Metamore City. Right. Um, you know, it, it's yeah, it's not something I'm hoping to profit from, other than the emotional satisfaction that I get from seeing people uh, get excited to to have the shirts and right. to wear them. You know, I didn't I didn't even offer this um, until I knew that there was an, there were enough people who wanted them 
uh, that I would be able to break even on it and still sell them at a, a right. price that was reasonable. Yeah. Because I wanted to be able to make it cheap enough that my, my listeners overseas could afford it, even, you know, factoring in the 10 bucks that it costs to ship some, to ship a shirt to, mm-hmm. you know, UK or New Zealand or whatever. Right. Um, second to the last question, unless something strikes me, um, have you gotten any feedback or comments where people have been like, I think you should do X with this character and, and gave you ideas of how, how things, um, how they wanted things to go? I have gotten some people who have given me their, their thoughts on, uh, characters and their, their interpretations of, you know, what those, what they saw in those people. Uh, one of the most interesting uh, conversations that came up happened because of uh, the story in uh, Episode 3, The Sentinel, where you've got um, this this sort of uh, contrast between uh, Jaina Starson, who is this very um, lawful-minded, uh, rigid enforcer of, you know, the... the, the what I call the Lightbringers or the Lothanasi, basically, you know, supernatural border guards. Mm-hmm. And he runs into a situation where he's running up against uh, Ms. Fallon, who is a, you know, a good-hearted succubus who runs a, a tenement uh, house in the bad part of town, you know, down on the street. And here you have two characters who have a common interest. They're both trying to protect this uh, young girl, and uh, they have very, very different ideas of how that should be done. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they are approaching the same problem with the best of intentions, but both of them have their own agendas that are coloring their behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, they, uh, Ms. Fallon, being a succubus, is very chaotic-minded. She is a you know, a, a libertarian anarchist does not really trust authority in any form and despises everything that people like Janus represent because they are attempting to control other people for the sake of order. And Janus, conversely, despises everything that Ms. Fallon represents because she is, you know, disorder, chaos, um, you know, Un, you know, unrestrained behavior by her very nature. You know, she she feeds on sexual energy. Right. And uh, so these you have these two characters who run into each other, are exposed to this completely different um, viewpoint on the same problem, and uh, both of them are given an opportunity to see how their their viewpoint is maybe extreme. Um, you know, how there may be potentially other sides to the you know, the situation, they're given an opportunity to understand each other, and they both walk away from it learning nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so there's been some interesting discussion about those those characters um, and their different worldviews and people debating back and forth about whether they think that Janus was more in the right or that Ms. Fallon was more in the right, um, you know, people who, you know, right, you know, were, commenting to me, you know, boy, Janus is really a dick. (laughs) uh, Other people who are saying, you know, but Ms. Fallon is sort of using a girl, this girl as a pawn to make her political statement, and she kind of 
she set up Janus in a trap and then suckered him into it so that she could lecture him. You know, she right. had her, you know, her scripture reference already to hit him with it. And it was just, you know, lighting him up, up against the wall and, you know, bam, bam, bam. Right. With her, you know, her metaphysical bullets. And, yeah. uh, so neither one of them was was acting with the you know purest of intentions. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that's gotten people interested. The other thing that people have debated about a lot is about the uh, telepaths, the psi collective, and their society. Uh-huh. Um, as we see in making the cut, they hive mind that is the the ruling body uh-huh. of the collective in Metamore City makes some choices and some decisions that uh, are not very nice right. to uh, the people, you know, our, our, our protagonists, our heroes, mm-hmm. um, you know, acting in what they believe is the, the, the uh, greater good of their society. And we've had a lot of people who are saying, you know, hey, wait a minute, what you're doing isn't the most rational thing for you to be doing this doesn't you know why are you why are these uh characters doing this you know they're they're overlooking this and that and the other thing and it's like yes they are because they're human <laughs> right in spite of the fact that they have these this ability to form these amazing group minds um you can't get an a logical product from illogical components mm-hmm. you know everybody who goes into that that uh, collective is carrying with them all the the baggage that comes with being human. Right. And uh, so we've had some very interesting discussions about that and people debating the social structure of the the hive and how it uh, is doing things wrong and what it could be doing better and uh, people speculating on how it might change uh, over the course of the story. Gotcha. Do you have a forum that people can go to 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 discuss all this? Yes. Uh, it still is in its infancy, but uh, we do have discussion forums. Um, they are being run by uh, one of my listeners, Shedwick Paddington. Um, you can find them at thecursed.org, um, T-H-E-C-U-R-S-E-D dot O-R-G. And uh, he's run, you know, that's that's pretty much the uh, official fan site for and he's got discussion forums and just added a fan art section and uh, is setting things up to be able to um, eventually do some free form uh, role playing on the uh, the discussion boards yet I don't think they've gotten anything going at that on that score yet Um, Shadwick's still trying to upgrade the uh, the servers to get a little bit faster performance out of the site Mm -hmm. but uh, we do have people over there and uh, contributing to discussions, and there's an Ask the Author section where people can come in and uh, pose questions to me, and I will answer them as best I can without giving anything away. <laughs> as an author, that must be, like, great for you. The, oh, you know, it's wonderful. I created such you know, a thing where you've got fan art and you've got fans and you've got, you know, fan-run sites and... Yes, it's it's very uh, very ego stroking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've I've always loved the uh, the sound of my own voice, perhaps too much. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's, uh, people are wanting me to expound upon the world that I've created and sort of provide them with on the fly director's commentary on what's going on. 
Yeah. Um, that's 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 just a blast. I mean, it takes a lot of a lot of time because I never answer a question um, briefly, as you may have noticed. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's been a very enjoyable experience. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more and more people getting involved over there on on those forums. That's awesome. Okay, I lied. One more question before I ask you the okay. last question. Um, plotting is big for me, as anybody who's been listening to the last two interviews would know. Um, you said that you plot everything out. What's what's your secret for figuring out how to how to plot your stuff? Okay. Um, it's a, sort of a multi-stage process. First off, um, I will write, once I come up with the idea for a story, I'll write a brief treatment about it, uh, typically one to three pages, ba- describing the basic storyline, what happens, where, you know, and uh, what the overarching themes are, if I'm aware at that time. A lot of times the, the deeper overarching themes or things that I discover later. But if I'm aware of them at the beginning, um, they will go into the treatment. Um, at that point, I start looking at that, that story um, description, and I start thinking about the different characters that I need in order to tell that story. And so there's a sort of virtual casting call that takes place in my head uh-huh. as I'm working out um, the players for the drama. Um, you know, I'll, I'll look at the characters that I've already created for the setting, and uh, you know, I may have in mind from the very beginning who I want to be the protagonist, or I may look at the you know the the themes that are being dealt with and say, okay, who am I going to pull in for this one? Um, you know, that that happened with uh, making the cut to a certain extent because uh, you know I started telling the story, and it's like, okay. I need a thief in order to fill this role in the story. And I already had Callie Linder, uh, who I had created for, or had kind of sprung fully formed from my head, like Athena from the head of Zeus, uh-huh. uh, when I created the muse. And uh, so Callie was a natural for that role. So I kind of picked her up, plunked her into the story. It's like, okay, Callie, this is your gig. And, right. uh so sometimes that happens, and sometimes it's more of a thing of, okay, I need somebody to fill this particular role in the story. In uh, the case of making the cut, um, I knew that I wanted my protagonist to be somebody who was somebody that we would look at and say, oh, he's got everything going for him. He's a guaranteed success. Um, so I created... Daniel, who is smart, good-looking, tall, muscular, athletic, um, a good combatant. You know, he's got some martial arts training, um, nice guy. And then, of course, I pulled the rug out from under him completely by having (laughs) the, you know, the the hive say, yes, you're you're very nice in all of these functions, but your telepathy sucks, so you're useless to us. Right. Right. turning the whole um, value system on its head by creating a society where the the traditional measures of success that we go by uh, don't matter, or at least don't matter enough to override his main defect from their point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then to contrast him, I created Brian, who is, you know, he's a computer nerd. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's a hacker. He's quiet. He's, you know, a peaceful man by nature. He does not like conflict. He does not like fighting. Um, he has some difficulties uh, keeping in shape. He's got a persistent paunch that he can never get rid of, even after being in the military for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got eyesight problems. He, you know, he needs glasses, and you know all these these different things that about him that are sort of not what we consider the standard idealized hero. And he's the one who all the good things happen to, at least initially in the story, because he's the one who's got the the good telepathy and a really unusual talent in his electrokinesis. And uh, I tried to deliberately make um, most of the, the, the telepaths who were sort of in the in crowd in making the cut be people who had obvious um, what we would see as flaws, um, you know, from our perspective. Fiona, you know, is not very pretty. Um, Rebecca's overweight. You know, Sa- Sasha kind of came in later, but, uh, you know, she, so she's not as uh, overtly flawed as some of the other people. But, you know, she, she was kind of the uh, created to be the glue that held that, that breeding cell together because I realized that, between them, they were they all had enough dysfunctions that they needed somebody to be the the center of the uh, you know the emotional center of, of the team, mm-hmm. and so that's that's kind of how the process goes. I think about the people who I need you know the the roles that I need to be filled within the story, and then create characters or cast existing characters to fill those needs. Once I've got a cast put together then I will start the actual outlining process um, where I'm going through scene by scene describing what happens. And for this, um, I would direct your listeners to Jim Butcher's live journal page um, because he has an awesome set of tutorials on the process of outlining um, and basically breaks down the process of storytelling into these, you know, scenes and sequels, as he calls them. Uh, scenes being places, you know, they're the, uh, the set pieces of the story where a character attempts to do something, attempts to achieve a goal, and fails. Right. Or they succeed, but there's complications. Right. And then the sequel is the point after the scene where they stop and say, well, crap, that didn't work. Now what? <laughs> and they come up with a new plan, which then right. leads into the next scene. And as right. he points out, you can tell an entire story that way. And if you read the Dresden Files, that is how his stories happen. Harry right. gets into one mess after another and is like, <laughs> well, crap, that didn't work. Now what do I do? Okay, I'm going to try this. Well, crap, plan that C. Didn't work. <laughs> plan D. All right, let's go to plan F. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. And as, as Jim likes to point out, his favorite uh, way of, of answering a scene is, you know, does he succeed? No. And furthermore, he makes the problem worse. <laughs> right. So um, when I was outlining making the cut, I was breaking it down <clears throat> into those scenes and sequels where you have, you know, those those moments of action and those moments of reflection. Uh-huh. And uh, each character, of course, has their, you know, who is a main protagonist type character has their through line of these series of events and then 
you know, in the process of your outline, you can weave back and forth between them so that, uh, you know, okay, I've just had this scene with Daniel. Now I'm going to pick up over here where Brian is having his sequel in response to his last scene, and then he formulates a plan to go forward, which is then going to lead into his next scene. But before that, we get back to Daniel and his sequel, and so on and so forth. You can tell the this, you know, bounce back and forth between your story arcs in this way. And eventually, if you know what you're doing, you bring them all back together at the end and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bring you know tie the stories together into a nice climax. And nice. everybody's happy in the end. Uh, the main reason that I had to restructure the story um, long about November was because uh, one character that people just met in Chapter 6, uh, Miriam Bakhtavar, the, uh, the elder uh, egoist, um, she turned from a bit character into another protagonist for the story uh, because I was starting to realize that, you know, her actions would have consequences, which would then lead her to do other things. And before I knew it, I had a whole other storyline that was going on alongside Brian's story and Daniel's story. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that uh, that led to a substantial expansion on the page count. And uh, what I thought was going to be a hundred word. 100,000-word novel is now uh, upwards of 170,000 and climbing. Nice. <laughs> nice. Right. Well, you don't have yeah. a problem for Nano. Um, <laughs> um, well, yes, I do, because I started this thing in May of last year. <laughs> and that was All right, after. so you're a little late. <laughs> yeah, I, I, keep in mind the outlining is, is not a fast process. Right. Um, I started outlining... I did my my initial treatment for making the cut in I want I think 2003 um, no 2004 mm-hmm. because it was right after I'd finished writing Troubled Minds and I wrote that in October of 2004 and it was around that Christmas that I came up with the idea okay I need to do the backstory for the uh, the telepaths mm-hmm. and uh, so I started working on that and then left it because it wasn't a major priority at the time, and uh, picked it up again around December of 2005 and worked on it for a while, kind of left it alone, picked it up again in fall of 2006. You're noticing a pattern here. Yeah. (laughs) And it was when I I realized that uh, podcasting was a viable uh, medium for storytelling Mm-hmm. that uh, I decided to really get serious about it and finish it. And I worked on that like crazy um, through the first few months of 2007, finished it in April, took two weeks off, and then immediately jumped into writing the the novel um, and have been working on that ever since. So awesome. not not a fast process. And the other thing I should mention is that no outline survives contact with the characters. <laughs> right. Um, once, uh, you know, once I started getting to know these people and uh, realized more about their personalities, I would look at things in the outline and say, no, Fiona really wouldn't do that. Or Miriam would do this if I let her, so how can I keep her from getting involved in this portion of the storyline that I don't want her involved in? Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, who else is going to be reacting to what Miriam is doing? Oh, yeah, that's right, the vampires. Right. 
Right. So it's this sort of uh, back and forth iterative process between the outlining and the uh, the writing, and the characters will surprise you. Yeah. They will uh, reveal things about themselves that you did not know when you were going into it. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that's one of the most satisfying things. I would say the two of my favorite characters in this novel now are um, actually three of the, the three characters who I, I, I've fallen most in love with are the, the ones who were not in the original outline. Uh, okay. Sasha, Miriam, and your character. Yay! I was hoping it was going to be me. No, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these these were characters who were not part of the original story treatment at all, and I created them to fill those needs in the plot. And uh-huh. along the way, it's like I started discovering things about them. Yeah, it was as I was in the process of writing chapter one of uh, making the cut that I realized that Sasha had a snarky sense of humor, uh-huh. and uh, which is an interesting contrast to her role as the emotional center of the group. Right. And uh, it was later on in the, you know, as I was writing some of the later scenes that I realized that she really, really hates conflict, really mm-hmm. hates seeing people fight. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, why is that? Oh, it's because she's such a strong telepath that all of those negative emotions get bounced to her, you know, a lot stronger than they are for everyone else. So she's right. constantly trying to be the peacemaker um, to avoid dealing with the din in her head. Right. And uh, then that led to another realization, well, what is, what's it like for her if she can't hear a person's thoughts? Mm-hmm. And there's a scene later in the book where she's seeing someone in great anguish on a, on a security monitor, and the person is behind a lead wall, and she can't hear them, and she's having a really hard time forming empathy for that person because she can't feel their pain like she normally does. So it's, it's right. hard for her to believe on a subconscious level that their pain is real. Mm-hmm. So you, you discover all of these nifty little things about the characters as you're in the process of telling the story, and that will change uh, the direction of some of the things in the plot. And see, it's that specifically that has me worried about doing you know, podcasting as I go. But, you know, I I think I've just decided it's going to be an experiment and, you know, everybody's along for the ride and hopefully it'll be fun. <laughs> so. Oh, sure. Even if something is, is not perfectly polished, it can be a huge, uh, you know, fun ride. I mean, shoot, look at uh, Mer Lafferty's Heaven and Hell. Those were written mm-hmm. totally on the fly. Right. And, you know, listening to them afterwards in one long stream, you can tell. Mm-hmm. But they are huge fun. Yeah. <laughs> they are really, really enjoyable stories. And, you know, you get sucked in because of the characters. And by the time that you get to Earth and Wasteland, where she was plotting extensively ahead of time, mm-hmm. you know, now you've got all the pieces together. And it's like, this is a dang good story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by yeah. the way, everybody, if you haven't listened to Wasteland yet, um, go Subscribe to Heaven and Hell and Earth and get through them and then get to Wasteland because it is awesome. Yeah, that'll be, I'll be linking a whole bunch of the things already that you've said and everything in the show notes so everybody will be able to get there. Dinosaurs, people. Steampunk (laughs) and dinosaurs. You can't beat that. possibly get more awesome than that. (laughs) 
Okay, I swear, only two more, only like one more question, and then the final hey, question. Keep are you? We'll you I, I, I don't have anywhere <laughs> I need to be. Are you going to Dragon Con this year? I am not going to Dragon Con. Oh, no. I am going to Balticon. Oh, that's um, right. You told me that. Yes. Right. So I will be at Balticon this uh, this May Memorial Weekend. Uh, that is my big con appearance for the year. Okay. Um, are you on any um, any panels or anything, or are you just going to enjoy the, the I event? Have been, I, I am being brought in as a guest uh, by Paul Fisher for the new the new media track, and nice. uh, he's sharing me with the literature track um, to be on some of their panels. I have not found out uh, what my programming schedule looks like yet. I know that I'm supposed to do a reading. Uh-huh. Um, of one of my stories, which I actually have to sit down and write. <laughs> yeah, you might want to get on that. <laughs> yeah, I have, you know, I've had this uh, story idea that I've been batting around in my head for the last few months and, uh, you know, got it mostly outlined now, but now I need to actually get down to writing it. Because, yeah. Yeah, we've got about, what, a little less than two months before before Balticon, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can yeah. do that. That's not a, that's not a, problem. <laughs> it's, a it's a relatively short story. Dude, I cool. wrote I wrote the Sentinel in one day. I think I can handle this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for your final question, um, was there a character that you had specific things planned for that decided on their own that they were not going to let you do and just do their own thing? Similar to that, yes. Um, the uh, there's there's a, a limit to how much I can talk about here because it would involve spoilers. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, Miriam's character, Miriam Bakhtivar, um I originally had her storyline ending in one way, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, by the end of the well, originally I didn't have her in there at all. Right. But and then I sort of had her in there, and she was taking a much more passive role, more in keeping with what the elders usually do, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know they're they're more of an agitating force for the protagonist than anything else. You may have noticed that they sort of tend to show up and be all you know mysterious and right. you know all the characters on the carpet and then they leave <laughs> and usually leave all kinds of wreckage in their path um emotionally and, and in terms of plot devices um but uh i knew from the the time that i started developing miriam as a character within a, a couple of chapters of you know getting into the story i knew that she was not cut of that sort of cloth, that she was a different sort of person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she basically, you know, stepped up and said, you know, I am not going to stand by and let these, uh, you know, let Brian and his people, um, you know, suffer through this. I'm going to help them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I can't have you at the climax because you're really, you know, <laughs> you're too powerful. Right. And so I said, guess what you've just volunteered yourself for? <laughs> and so that took the story in a different direction. Gotcha. And uh, then uh, your character, who I can't say very much about yet, other than the fact that she is, 
She she is part of Malcolm Ardvalis's organization, part of the Vampires organization, um, who becomes entangled with Miriam's story and her behavior. Um, she basically made some choices and you know, informed me as I was in the process of finishing the outline that she was not going to let me do to Miriam what I thought I was going to do to Miriam. Mm. and uh, that she was going to take things in a different direction, and I realized that she was uh, capable of doing so. <laughs> and uh, so that the, the end result was I got what I needed in that Miriam was, was uh, moved out of the, out of the, uh, the uh, position in the story where she could interfere with the, the final confrontation between the, uh, the protagonist and the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, her story did not end in the place that I thought it was going to end. Gotcha. So that's about all I can say at that point. I probably have already said too much. But. Well, and you know, it just makes everybody want to, you know, tell you to hurry up. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I want to. I want to thank you for um, for you know coming and and talking to me about it all all the different things and i i really appreciate you dealing with all of the technical difficulties we had before um before we actually started so thank you for your patience on that and uh thank you for being one of the cool nice podcasters who are willing to help people and uh and and all that so thank you very much well you're welcome it was a lot of fun and uh anytime that you want me to come on and gab about the uh the urban fantasy genre i have no shortage of opinions as you may have noticed <laughs> well and you know i'm probably going to take you up on that so beware right. i'll have to yeah. you know get in on your schedule so that i'm not taking you away from your characters because the last thing i need is 1400 people writing me because i've taken you away from the story <laughs> so yes that's right everyone it's if the, an episode is ever late, it's oh, no. fault. Oh, it's always Kimmy's fault. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to part two of the interview with Chris Lester. More interviews and writing casts are on the way, along with my new podcast novel, Guardians. So don't be a stranger. In one year, over 170,000 books are published. And out of those 170,000 books, you want the world to read yours. That's when you need... A survival guide to writing fantasy. I'm its host, T. Morris. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. The survival guide provides an inside look at how authors market and self-promote their works and themselves. You'll hear how author Tony Ruggiero and I, on a limited budget, decide whether or not to visit DragonCon. No. 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 I'll drive. Okay. You'll get ideas on the best way to handle fans and critics. You know what the rest of your problem is? You've never had anybody give you the angiomyna treatment. And on occasion, I'll feature an interview, like the one I did with Hugo and Nebula winner Rob Sawyer. Everybody calls me Psycho. Any of you guys call me Francis, and I'll kill you. Visit www.tmorris.com and enroll for the Survival Guide to Writing Fantasy, a podcast of strategies and insights. That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! Thanks for listening to Tale Chasing. If you'd like more information on how to participate, be interviewed, critiqued, 
or just share your opinions, come to www.tailchasing.com. You can also call into the voice line and leave your comments at 201-830-1586. Until next time, we'll be creating more magic.